Welcome to episode 1026 of Effectively Wild, the baseball podcast from Fangrass, presented by our Patreon supporters. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a writer for The Ringer, joined as always by Jeff Sullivan of Fangrass. Hello, Jeff. Hi. I have a couple of follow-ups to last week's email show before we get to this week's email show. Do you have anything you want to talk about before that? Uh, sure. Some real quick banter that was sent to us via email, maybe in the Effectively Wild group. I don't know. It was a link to MLB trade rumors. Uh, the headline of the story is Cardinals interested in Cuban prospect. I'm sorry. I don't know how to say this, but I'm going to guess Louis Robert. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Let's go with Louis Robert. Looks like Louis Robert, but it's probably not Louis Robert. So <laughs> yeah. just an ordinary article Cardinals have been scouting. Cuban outfielder Louis Robert, Derek Gold of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reports, blah, blah, blah. Ordinary article about a potential international signee, except that if you scroll down in the article, in the penultimate paragraph, we have the following sentence. I'll just, I'll just read the paragraph. I'll just read the paragraph for everyone. Needless to say, Robert will command far beyond that $300,000 figure, given the eye-popping early reports on his talent. One NL international scouting director tells Sanchez, Jesse Sanchez, that Robert is second only to Shohei Otani on the list of best international talents in baseball, describing the 19-year-old as, quote, a five-tool guy that can be in the big league soon. But wait, it gets better. That's not part of the paragraph. That was mine. This is back to the paragraph. An international scouting director for an AL team goes even further, calling Robert, quote, the best player on the planet, and that's no exaggeration. The best player on the planet, (laughs) and that's no exaggeration. So we don't have much of a record of Louis Robert, which... By the way, that's point of evidence number one, that he's not the best player on the planet, (laughs) and that's no exaggeration. But we do have, or I should say Baseball Reference does have some history of Louis Robert. I don't know how complete these numbers are, but we have parts of, I guess, four years of being a player in Cuba. Louis Robert has played predominantly left field, some center field. He's listed as a first baseman perplexingly. I don't know what that's about. But over the fractions of four years, this totals nearly 500 trips to the plate. Robert has hit 276 with six home runs in a league that's been almost entirely depleted of talent. Granted, this is Robert as a teenager when the average age in the league has been kind of more, I guess, my age. But the uh, the ages are all over the place. The talent levels are all over the place. I have never seen Louis Robert. I am certainly not a scout, even if I had seen Louis Robert. But what I am is a guy who writes about baseball often enough to know that a 19-year-old from Cuba is almost certainly not as good or better than Mike Trout, who is the <laughs> best player in the world. And that's no exaggeration. Maybe Shohei Otani, although I'm skeptical he could bring... We don't need to go into that. What... <laughs> What odds, given only these two glowing quotes and one quote so glowing that it could have its own solar system around it, what odds, based only on that, do you think there are that Louis Robert actually is the best baseball player on the planet right now, and that's no exaggeration? (laughs) I don't think you could give me odds that I would take (laughs) for that bet. I mean, he played 16 games last year in the Can-Am League, which is a a mid-level indie league. I'm not sure exactly how that happened. Apparently, the Cuban team played in the Can-Am League (laughs) for a little while. And he was 19, and he hit 286, 319, 397, which, whatever, it's 71 plate appearances. But, I mean, I think if you put Mike Trout in the Can-Am League for 16 games, he would totally destroy it. So (laughs) I'm going to say he's not the best player on the planet. Maybe he's projecting and saying he has the potential to be the best player on the planet. Even that seems like a stretch. I mean, the first glowing quote, I'd believe, I suppose, Mm -hmm. just knowing very little about the player. If a scouting director says he's the second best international prospect, I don't have a better suggestion for who the second best international (laughs) prospect is. So sure, I'll go along with that one. But best player on the planet right now, no exaggeration. That seems like an exaggeration. So (laughs) the question is, why would he say that? Because usually baseball people don't say things for no reason. They have some sort of motive. Some of them just like talking to reporters and like getting quoted, maybe. But do you think that he's trying to drive the price up for 
a guy that his team is not interested in or doesn't have the budget to sign? Is he hoping to make the Cardinals or some other team pay more by being quoted saying he's the best player on the planet and would that work i mean i could see that the problem is that other uh that other source of a different quote in the same paragraph it's sort of like a prereq i guess for the subsequent quote where if you buy that this guy is a 5-0 player and he could be in the major soon then the other quote isn't so extraordinary you say well that guy could be the best player in the league I guess, in the short-term future or, you know, right now. So it's very possible. Again, I've never seen him. This is the first I've ever heard of him. I think the probability is even this is the last I'll ever hear of him, just based on the way these <laughs> things usually go. But I can I can buy your theory, or it could be that that guy is trying to drive up his own team's price, uh, which would be, I guess, silly negotiating in public. But you think of when the Dodgers <laughs> signed Yasiel Puig and everybody else is like, what are they doing? And then it turned out he was actually pretty good until the until the things he was doing wore off, I guess would be yeah. one way to put it. Or he's uh, just a big fan of the player and he wants his team to sign him, but his team isn't that interested. So he, <laughs> he's just like bringing in this clipping from this article. Look at this scouting director. He says he's the best player on the planet. I was Louis, right about this guy when I told you that same thing. <laughs> here are the four players on, uh, according to Baseball Reference, on the 2016 Cuban national team that participated in the Canadian American Association. Here are the four players who had a higher OPS than Louis Robert, Juan Torriente, Yosvani, Alarcon, Yorbis Borotto, and Yoelvis Fis. I've never known Fis as a last <laughs> name, but not only is Fis a last name, but he even was a better player in the league last year than Louis Robert, struck out half as often. Uh, I should point out, first of all, that this quote declaring that Robert is the best player on the planet, and that's no exaggeration, is maybe the most fantastic in the literal sense of the word thing mm -hmm. that I've seen related to baseball since I saw that Pakoda projected the Dodgers to be seven games better than the Cubs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I also want to point out just looking at, uh, at the baseball reference page for this 2016 Canadian American Association. That's a Can-Am league, right? And that's what you said. Yeah. So here are here are the uh, what is this eight? Here are the eight teams that are in that league. Uh, the New Jersey Jackals, whatever. Le Capitale de Quebec. Shouldn't do French. Mm -hmm. Cuban national team. Boring name. For that team, I guess. The <laughs> Rockland Boulders, which is very literal. The <laughs> Shikoku Island All-Stars. The Sussex County Miners. The Trois-Rivières... Uh, come on, yeah. French. Three Rivers... Uh, three they rivers signed a Stomper <laughs> while I was there, so I know about them. And the last team in the League of Eight are the Ottawa Champions, who finished in fourth place. You can never... <laughs> You can never <laughs> refer to your own team as the champions unless you are extremely sure. I can get like the, the Shikoku Island All-Stars, whatever. Maybe they're the All-Stars from the island. But the Ottawa <laughs> champions? No, you can't get away with that. That's absurd. That's worse than having two Rough Riders. They were probably the best team in Ottawa in the league. Hey, Adron Chambers is on that team. <laughs> So on Robert's Cuban team in 2015, his last full season that he played in that league, he was only the sixth best hitter on that team. And one of the hitters ahead of him was 43 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Cuba is insane, man. <laughs> okay, so a couple follow-ups to recent topics. The first, the Andrew Miller net saga. Why was Andrew Miller throwing from in front of the net in spring training? We found out that hitters weren't swinging, and so he didn't need to be protected by the net. But still, why was the net there? Lots of people wrote in to point out that maybe it was to protect him from balls being hit from behind or being thrown from behind. The idea being that, I don't know, outfielders would be throwing in balls, maybe coaches would be hitting grounders or fungos or something, and mm -hmm. so the balls would be coming back to the mound, and you want to protect Andrew Miller from that. So maybe that was happening. We don't know if balls were being hit at the same time as Miller was throwing to hitters who weren't swinging, but that's plausible. That could explain it. Yeah, I, I do remember from my own baseball practices now, I recall that there would be like a net set up. It was kind of behind the second base, then there would be a bucket behind the net, and then there would be somebody there collecting balls thrown in from the outfield to then put in the bucket, and the net was there to keep balls from getting beyond that person and the bucket. The net, of course, was very small. We were in high school. Throw still got away. We sucked. But <laughs> the difference here is that this net is directly behind the mound, protecting seemingly nothing 
And while I understand that, yeah, this is spring training, there's a lot of players around on the same field doing a bunch of different drills. I can totally get that that net could serve a different function. But somebody tweeted at me yesterday or today a picture of Edwin Diaz pitching in the same circumstance where he's on the mound and there's a net behind him and there's a coach behind the net. And you can see in the picture a lot of the background of the field and there's nothing. There's not a single spectator. There's nobody on the field. There's nothing going on. I realize that by talking about this in I think our third podcast and now we're really doubling down on this being weird even though clearly every single team appears to do it so there's got to be a reason i know people keep writing in and suggesting reasons i can come to the conclusion i think there are two conclusions one is that coaches do just like to lean on things so they want a prop and two the net is there as sort of a relic from an earlier drill and no one bothered to move it out of the way and so we're seeing i guess sort of a vestigial net photographed even though the net serves no purpose anymore it once did for protection and maybe we're making too much out of it Mm -hmm. okay and on the topic of nicknames we talked on last week's email show about whether nicknames are worse now or less common now than they used to be and why that might be and we had a bunch of different theories and we talked about whether it's actually true there's a long thread from this week in the facebook group where listeners are reporting nicknames from their teams that maybe are not nationally known, but are known at least in the local markets or on the internet or blogs use them or whatever it is. And there are a ton of nicknames there, and some of them I was aware of, some of them I wasn't. I'll just read quickly some. The original poster was an Indians fan, so he posted some from the Indians. Corey Kluber, Klubot, Michael Brantley, Dr. Smooth, Jose Ramirez is the angry hamster, Josh Tomlin is the little cowboy. There are a lot of these. They uh, they go on and on. Anthony Rizzo, the main ingredient, the Orioles, Chris Davis, Crush Davis, Mark Trumbo, Trumbom, Manny Machado is Manny baby fa- baby-faced assassin Machado. Brandon Belt is the baby giraffe, of course, mm-hmm. and... Gregor Blanco was called the shark because he was the Greg White shark. And (laughs) (laughs) Kyle Hendricks, the professor, Wilson Contreras, WC40. Then, of course, the Mets have Noah Syndergaard as Thor and La Potencia as Cespedes and the Dark Knight, which is kind of a lame one, but that's Harvey and David Wright, Captain America, Anthony Discofani as Disco and Josh Donaldson, the bringer of rain. That's his Twitter handle. And I guess it's kind of caught on the Cardinals, Matt Adams, Big City, Jumbo Pepsi for some reason, Carlos Martinez, Tsunami. I think we know why Matt Adams is Jumbo Pepsi. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that makes sense. The Mariners... Hisashi Iwakuma, the bear? Is that one you're aware of? Is that a thing? Uh, yeah, Kuma yeah. is Japanese for bear. Ah, okay. Uh, and so there's yeah, there's been a bear hat giveaway where uh-huh. it's like, I don't need to explain it to you. You can imagine. What's in your imagination yeah. is better than reality. <laughs> but, Nelson uh, Cruz, yeah. Boomstick, Tom Wilhelmson, the bartender, because he was a bartender, and <laughs> Edwin Diaz, Sugar, Eric Campbell on the Mets, Soup, Michael Conforto, Scooter. Anyway, there are a lot of them. There's a lot of recycled nicknames in there also. Yeah, Soup. soup. Good Soup. Yeah, (laughs) as our president would say. (laughs) So they're out there. So maybe they're not nationally known. Maybe they will be at some point. Some of them will break through. But if you fast forward 50 years into the future, maybe some of these would be nicknames on baseball reference because as Alex wrote to us, How widely known or used were those old-timey nicknames, really? How often would you get on someone's Wikipedia or baseball reference page and see nicknames that you have never seen or heard before? Wouldn't it only take one writer to make a nickname seem like it was a real nickname when it actually lacked any real cultural cachet? So that's true. I don't know what the nickname standards for those sites are, but sometimes you see some that you've never heard. Of course, we know the really famous nicknames in baseball history were actually widely used at the time, but there were probably some that were just in one local market or was some writer's pet name or something, and someone submitted it to those sites, and it looks like there were more nicknames than were actually in regular rotation at the time. So. Nicknames are alive and well. Let's see. I want to. I want to try something live. See if this works. So I'm. Okay. I'm already looking at a, a baseball reference page for the future stat segment, which is coming from Baseball Reference, not Fangraphs. Uh-huh. Please sponsor us anyway. Okay. So let's see. I'm looking. <laughs> famous players. Famous players. Okay. First player I don't recognize is someone named Bill Hands. I don't need to explain why he's on this list, but let's look at Bill Hands. 
Bill Head's uh, former Effectively Wild guest. Okay. <laughs> was, well, I'll yeah. be damned. Okay. He was actually the, the second old-timey pitcher, not quite as old-timey as the late Ned Garver, but old-timey-ish, and we cold-called him, too. So I must yeah, have Bill missed Hans. that episode somehow. Uh, <laughs> incidentally, on this list, Bill Hands is tied with only one player in the stat of choice. Bill Hands tied with someone named Rich Hand. So that's a fun coincidence. <laughs> anyway, Bill Hands... Clicking on the more bio, do you think, maybe you already know this, but do you think Bill Hands, old-timey player, had a nickname or did not have a nickname that shows up in Baseball Reference? I would say yes. The answer is yes, Froggy. Bill Hands, yes, nickname that's right. Froggy. Okay. I did, uh, yeah, I remember that. I wonder, oh, there's a link to look at all nicknames. Oh, that's for a different time. So I wonder also, we baseball is known to be a regional or tribal game now where I think that if there's like a game of the week, people are not particularly interested if it does not feature their team. And granted, maybe this is not unique to baseball. Maybe this is true among all sports except for football. But I wonder, maybe baseball used to be more national. Maybe people used to care about baseball more than just their own teams. And so maybe that allowed nicknames to spread more easily because you're right, teams have a bunch of their own nicknames now and obviously i know about the mariners nicknames and i've heard like dr smooth before but maybe in retrospect don't nickname michael brantley after a doctor but that's <laughs> foreshadowing i wonder if maybe it's just more difficult for a nickname like that to spread beyond an individual team's market because people mm -hmm. outside of that market don't care yeah maybe all right emails emails okay michael says you own the worst team in baseball. In hopes of competitive balance, MLB is offering you free personnel from the best team in baseball. You can take Chris Bryant for one year. You would be able to trade him, but he's only under contract for the one year. Theo Epstein for three years, or Joe Madden and his entire coaching staff for six years. Whom do you take? Worst team in baseball, so I can have a coaching staff the general manager or president of baseball operations, I should say, or a third baseman, first baseman, right fielder, left fielder, DH face of the franchise and magazine spread. I will take Chris Bryant <laughs> for one year. I think that I would probably trade Chris Bryant almost immediately for longer term assets in this circumstance. But I think that it would be, there's just too much that's less known about the value of the coaching staff or even the executive. Of course, if you get Theo Epstein, that by no means guarantees you're getting a bunch of people with Theo Epstein, which Theo Epstein himself would say is even more important because you need to have that that big giant staff. I don't know how long it would take to assemble. In order, I think I'd go Bryant, then Epstein, then Madden as much as I want to pick the coaching staff just because, hey, being contrarian, I can't bring myself to do it. I think just objectively... Based on the information that I know, it would be a lot more difficult to replace a Chris Bryant with someone close than a single executive or an entire coaching staff. Mm -hmm. I think I'm taking Theo. I think Theo just turned the worst team in baseball into the best team in baseball, basically, mm -hmm. in about three years, which is how long we have him under contract in this scenario. He drafted Chris Bryant, so in theory, at least, he can get another Chris Bryant, not that there's always another one out there, not that there was no luck involved in that pick, but he can replenish a roster. He's proven he can do that. He, with the Red Sox, he didn't do that so much as he inherited a, a pretty good veteran team and supplemented it. But with the Cubs, he basically built it from scratch. And you'd think that kind of thing would get harder and harder over time. Front offices get smarter and smarter. They learn from the things that the Cubs did. Maybe Theo Epstein's strategies won't work as well a second time. But I think that you hire him. If you hire him, you even if he doesn't come with his coworkers, he would attract some, just mm -hmm. people who like working with him, people who've followed him around, people who know his reputation. So I figure you could put together a, a really good front office if you just start with Theo. And he's pretty proven at being able to put together a good team and evaluate talent and, and sign undervalued talent or trade for it. And so I think Theo, and that would suggest that probably Theo is still underpaid relative to what he's paid, which is a lot relative to a lot of other baseball executives if he's really this valuable. But I think based on the job he did in Chicago, you have to bank on him being able to do the same for your terrible team and 
Chris Bryant, as great as he is and as huge a return as he would bring back in trade, doesn't give you a great baseball team all by himself. So I think you're going with Theo. Uh, okay, I I understand the argument. Granted, Theo's, uh, let's see, what was his first draft of the Cubs? 2012, I think. So his first yeah. high pick was Albert Almora in 2012, which granted he's on the team now, but I mean, he's no Chris Bryant at this point is the least we can say. Uh, you're right. Theo is going to bring other people with him. Uh, he's going to fill out his staff pretty quickly as every new executive does. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. In these conditions, does that just mean he's guaranteed to be gone in three years? I guess you can't keep yeah, him. He and could you... stay, right? I mean, I don't know. Chris well, Bryant. Sure, okay, well, then I'll, yeah. get, I'll get Brian and I'll sign him to an extension. But, uh, yeah, you could do that. Uh, if you can still, convince him to. Yeah, still probably wouldn't. I mean, if, you, if you're the worst team in baseball, you know you're already getting the number one pick in the next draft. So mm-hmm. if I think, I guess I have more faith in being able to get Bryant and then getting a pretty good GM than getting mm-hmm. Epstein and then trying to fill out the roster. I don't know. I mean, given the conditions, you know, if you get Bryant, you know you need a general manager. But if you get a general manager, does what players? what players are you selecting from here? It's just... I'm not explaining this very well, but well, yeah, like- we don't know what you're starting with. Like when Theo was with the Cubs, he traded a bunch of guys and he got guys back. We don't know if this terrible team he's inheriting is just totally valueless or whether there are people he can trade to recoup talent. So hard to know what situation he's heading into here exactly okay well i guess if if you're the worst team in baseball and you presumably are not going to be good in the following season maybe brian doesn't make sense because you're not really talking about brian at that point if you're just going to have him for one year there's no point in having him for one year then you're trading him and then so you're basically comparing the coaching staff for six years epstein for three or whatever prospects you get for one year of chris bryant and maybe at that point then i'm more convinced to take the front office because i don't know what the trade value is of one year of Chris Bryant, I could, mm-hmm. I guess, try to figure it out, but it would be it would be high, but I think it would be less outlandish than people would expect. You can reflect on when David Price was traded. Okay, I'm I'm coming around. I understand. I understand. Maybe you take the front office, but I still am not certain what the difference is between Epstein and the next level mm-hmm. replacement GM that yeah. you could get on the market. Neither am I. No, you. I mean, you could hire Epstein's right-hand people right now and promote them to president and you could basically know everything that the Cubs know and so I don't know how much value there is to actually having him and whatever discipline or creativity or hard work he brings relative to the next best candidate it could be a pretty small difference it's hard to say he's just done it and proven that he can do it recently and that's the thing like we're saying that all the other GMs are smart and all the other front offices are smart and I believe that and yet he just built a better baseball team than <laughs> all of those other front offices did yeah, right and in yeah, a pretty short did. amount of time so <laughs> I know he did he built the best team we've seen in a while and, <laughs> and uh, like you know they, they definitely got lucky in some ways they easily could have drafted someone else other than Bryant instead of Bryant like I don't know that that means that they are better drafters than everyone else like I mean what did they drafted second that year right he was the right. second pick so maybe 28 other teams would have taken Chris Bryant with that pick if they had had it so I don't know that that makes them brilliant he was just there and they happened to have that pick and I don't know that we can give them full credit for Arietta and Hendricks and all of these amazing finds that they no, made. No, so, we can't. <laughs> so if you <laughs> simulate the Cubs rebuilding process a hundred thousand times, like the playoff odds or whatever, I don't know what percentile outcome their actual rebuild was. Like maybe that was a 99th percentile outcome where they build the best team of baseball in three years and they win a world series. Like, I don't know how many times that happens if you could somehow replay that over and over again. So maybe our perception of the Epstein is inflated because they just had a bunch of things go right. Obviously it wasn't all luck. There's lots of skill involved, but yeah, relative to other baseball teams, I don't know exactly how much value he adds. So taking the MVP player, who we know is better than almost all the other baseball players, except for Mike Trout and Louis Robert, would be uh, (laughs) probably a a safe pick. So I could understand 
that angle also. I just, I don't know. I guess I'm biased by the Cubs' success. Maybe yeah. I'm buying too much into it. Oh, uh, they're really the, good. It's, <laughs> yeah. They're a really good organization. I don't know. Maybe you take a Bryant and then you just get someone in your organization to cozy up to the Kremlin so then you can sort of know <laughs> what's going on with the Cubs on a daily, uh-huh. day-to-day basis. Because, yeah. you, know, you know, if it's an American Chris Cray, he's going to go to jail for 46 months. But if you cozy... <laughs> Okay, anyway. (laughs) All right, good question, Michael. Eric Hartman says, Fangraphs projects the bottom five teams in baseball this year to be the Padres, Brewers, White Sox, Reds, and Phillies, with the latter having the most wins, 71. If those five teams were in a division this year, how many wins would the division winner have? So each of these teams gets to play the other terrible teams, what, almost 80 times? So that helps a lot. So like half of their schedule is against teams that are as bad as they are, basically. Really bad teams. So then at that point, you're basically playing probably 500 baseball against those teams. Right. Over, what is it, 19 games against your division rival still? Yeah. So Mm -hmm. 19 times 4, that's 76 times Mm -hmm. half of that is 38. So you're getting, I don't know, if you expect that you're playing, doing math on the fly here, you're... (laughs) So you're probably, if you're talking about a 70-win team, then over a 76-game stretch, then you're looking at like 33 wins. However, if you're getting 38, then you're you're looking at maybe five extra wins just based on that really soft schedule. This is take, making things maybe too easy, but five extra wins. So then you're looking at the best of those teams maybe winning 70, being like a 76-win team, but then you're yeah. also probably Yeah, when you're playing outside the some, division, you're going to lose even more. Yeah, cause... then you're getting slaughtered. So you get a, <laughs> a small boost, but not an extraordinary boost. I'm, I'm thinking now of the 2005 NL West when the Padres won by going 82 and 80, and then <laughs> yeah. they promptly got swept in the first round. But maybe my favorite, I don't know if you remember this, because... Uh, and maybe you do. So I th- I've thought a lot about the 1995 Mariners because that team was sensational, had mm-hmm. a great story and everything. I th- I think less about the 1994 Mariners because that season had no conclusion. For anyone out there who doesn't know, the 1994 Mariners were 49 and 63 when the season came to a close. 49 and 63. So just based on winning percentage, that had them at the end of the season, they were the second worst team in the American League. Second worst, Mm -hmm. Seattle Mariners, 49 and 63. Second worst team in the American League. They were also two games out of the division lead because the Texas (laughs) Rangers were 52 and 62, and they were in first place in the AL West after 114 games. (laughs) So I haven't actually looked at the history, but... That was that was almost certainly going to be easily the worst division in the history of baseball. The four worst teams in the American League that season were all the four teams in the American League West. <laughs> so the Rangers yeah. were going to make the playoffs, and then the A's, who were in second place, they were going to be, or they were, I guess, back then they had one wild card, right? They were, yeah. they were going to transition to the wild card era. So the A's were one game out of the division and 15 and a half games out of the wild card race at the same time. So maybe this division that we're discussing would look a lot like the 1994 American League West, which is the worst division I have to imagine that has ever existed in sports. (laughs) Okay, so the winning team in this division is still a losing team. Yeah, almost. It's got to be. Okay. All right. Andre says, with the advent of the new intentional walk rule, it's very likely that we'll soon see a pitcher get through a full half inning of three outs with fewer than three pitches thrown. Picture this. The leadoff man has walked intentionally. The next batter hits into a double play on the first pitch, and then the third batter has a one-pitch pop-up. How long do you think it'll take before we see this sort of situation for real next season, the next five seasons? You have already responded to this question. Yeah, so I sent an email back, but I might as well... I I feel guilty. I I send emails back and then I realize, well, maybe we'll talk about this on the show, so I shouldn't send an email back. But in any case, (laughs) for everyone's benefit. So he's right. In theory, we can see a a two-pitch inning. In theory, we can see a one-pitch inning, as a matter of fact. You intentionally walk the first two people, then you get a triple play. You could have a nine-pitch complete game shutout no-hitter. Here's the problem with the theory. I totally agree that it makes sense we could see intentional these low pitch innings but under what circumstances would you ever intentionally walk the first batter of an inning why right. would you if, even if Barry Bonds is coming up 
in his prime, not in 2017, even though I might still intentionally walk him. Even if the worst player in baseball is on deck, it still doesn't really do you any good to just put the first guy on base automatically. So I think that barring something I can't imagine, we'll never see this play out as such unless you could conceivably, I guess, have the first batter, I don't know, double and then you intentionally walk the next guy because the pitcher is coming up Mm -hmm. or something to set up the force and then the last guy hits into a triple play so maybe if the first guy doubles on the first pitch of the inning then you intentionally walk the second guy and then the last guy hits into a triple play on the first pitch of his at bat then you can have a two-pitch inning but i don't think that i don't know maybe you see that once in a century but i think the odds are extraordinarily slim yeah we can't check to see if Bonds was ever walked intentionally to lead off an inning, can we? That would be a can tough we? thing to check. I can certainly try here while you continue to talk on the air. <laughs> I'll just do this in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's hard to imagine. I'm with you on this. I don't think I have all that much else to say. It's fun that this is at least theoretically possible now, but... Yeah, I can't imagine a realistic scenario where it would happen. Okay, let's look at all of Barry Bonds' career intentional walks, courtesy of baseball reference. So, Mm -hmm. do we have anything with the bases empty? There are 41 qualifying intentional walks for some reason. So, Hmm. why don't we look at those? And bases empty and number of outs. Five. What the hell? Hold on. What's going on here? <laughs> well, I'm looking at five intentional walks with nobody on and nobody out. Really? Well, let's just go into it. Let's look at the most recent one. So 2007. Okay. okay. Giants, Blue Jays, 2007. At this point, Barry Bonds is 64 years old <laughs> and it's the bottom of the sixth and uh, Barry Bonds is facing Brian Tallett. Uh, okay. Because this is history, let's just call him Brian Tillet. It makes it more fun. <laughs> the Giants are winning 4-3. to three. Brian Tallett is facing Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds is intentionally walked to lead off the inning. And Tallett uh, is a lefty. And Tallett is... Okay, so here's... Maybe this isn't a surprise. Tallett fell behind 3-0, uh, okay. throwing three actual pitches, and then he decided, well, let's just put him on. So why don't we look at the other four instances of this? I'm going to guess that yeah, it's must been all the be. exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Although the first one's from 1996. That's that's pretty far back there. So, okay. 2004, we have the last one against Jose Mesa, who I think walked everyone, never on <laughs> purpose. He threw two balls before he intentionally walked Barry Bonds to lead off. Right. Justin Spire threw three balls before issuing a fourth intentional ball. Danny Graves threw four. Okay, hold on. Danny Graves, <laughs> May 9th. We're looking at the top of the 10th. This is 2004, peak Barry Bonds. Mm-hmm. Danny Graves opens the 10th inning, 6-6 game, by intentionally walking Barry Bonds on four (laughs) intentional balls. There it is. (laughs) The following batter, Edgardo Alfonso, doubles. Bonds goes to third. The next guy hits a fly ball to score Bonds, and the Giants win the game. (laughs) So it all falls apart. But Danny Gray, okay, so just to make sure, in 1996, Jeff Brantley walked Bonds on... Okay, so I don't know how to read this, but this is this is the full line from Baseball Reference. Pitches, one, sub or play on a runner, comma, 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 intentional ball. So I'm going to guess that, well, I, I'm, I can't guess anything because that doesn't make any sense. So let's just see what happened with, uh, with Jeff Brantley and Barry. Okay, so this I don't quite understand. Bottom of the ninth, 1996, the Giants are batting down by one, Jeff Brantley comes in. Look at that. Jeff Brantley replaces Lenny Harris. So let's just go ahead and have <laughs> our Lenny Harris mentioned in, in, uh, okay. in this podcast. So Brantley, bottom of the ninth, trying to protect a 3-2 game. Something weird is happening. It says that he intentionally walked to Barry Bonds to start the inning, but the first pitch, the last three were all intentional balls. The first one says intentional ball, but all this sub or play on a runner stuff, so I don't know hmm. what that is about but we have some evidence that in 1996 Barry Bonds was intentionally walked on four pitches to start an inning and then Glenn Allen Hill struck out surprise Tom Lampkin hit a fly ball Rick Wilkins singled and then Jay Canizaro struck out to end the game and the Reds won so maybe Barry Bonds was intentionally walked to start an inning on four pitches then but we know he was in 2004 Danny Graves did it and then got the loss because it's a stupid idea to intentionally walk the first batter of an inning on four pitches but it has happened all right so we just need the reincarnation of peak bonds and maybe someone will be crazy enough to try it. What the hell was going, what did bonds do 
In that game, Bonds went over four, just <laughs> for the record. Uh, however, his OPS coming into the game was 1.556. Okay, so kind of get it, <laughs> but still don't get it. Yeah. All right. Well, this is related. Let's do a Trout hypothetical. Perfect. Dan from New Jersey says, if Mike Trout were traded to a National League team that insisted on batting him eighth in front of the pitcher, what would his walk rate and on-base percentage look like? Do you think he would break Barry Bonds' single-season records for walks and intentional walks? I don't think that he'd break Bonds' record. He would be walked a ton. Who is the best? I should have looked. I should have researched this one, but I didn't. I don't know who the best player is that we've seen bat eighth. Obviously, there are a number of intentional walks in that circumstance, but you still like you wouldn't want to, as just discussed, you wouldn't want to like walk Trout to lead off an inning. You wouldn't just want to put him on all willy nilly for no reason. But his walk rate would be, I would say, at least I mean, he already led the American League in walks or in walk rate last year without batting eighth. So he walks a lot as it is without being put on intentionally all that much. I think we talked on this podcast before about, I think, how infrequently Trout has been intentionally walked. Like, it seems like he should have been intentionally walked more, and maybe he hasn't been because Pujols has been hitting behind him and people have respected Pujols a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, in 2012, when he was the best player in baseball, he was only intentionally walked four times, and then ten times, and then six times. Last couple seasons, a little bit more, 14 times and 12 times, but... No one's really pitching around Trout in that way all that much. But again, he's batting second and third. So if he were in eighth, he would, what, double his walk rate? Okay, so let's see what I can do here. A third of the time. Batting eighth. Okay, so I'm just going to, again, we're, I guess, doing this on the fly. I'm looking at players who have batted eighth since 2002. This is a a fangraphs thing. Let's give them at least, I don't know, 100 plate appearances, and let's just see what spits out here. See what we can do with players batting eighth. And okay, highest walk rate of anyone batting eighth. We've got, oh God, these players are terrible. Okay, <laughs> Jock Peterson, he batted eighth 281 times, I guess. That's a National League thing. He walked 17% of the time. He's pretty good. Uh, Yasmani Grandal walked 16% of the time. Kevin Euclid. 16% of the time batting eighth, but of course that's the American League, so that's very different. I don't know how yeah, to... Yeah, the, the overall walk rate in the National League for eighth place hitters was 8.9% last year. In the American League, it was only 7.8%. So it's higher, but not that much higher. Yeah, without running the actual predictive math, I'd say you would have Trout walking at least a third of the Mm -hmm. time, which is insane. Mm -hmm. And then he would steal a lot of bases but yeah he i don't i i still don't think he would break bonds's record that that would require something absolutely extraordinary yeah all right you want to do your stat segment sure okay so this fangraph stat segment is brought to you by baseball reference where i looked up all the numbers <laughs> so i was uh i was curious as i get when i'm very desperate for topics it is march 1st this <laughs> is a terrible time to be trying to write there's not even video footage of very much spring training so we can hardly break anyway i end up in the uh, the same well, which is pitchers facing pitchers. I am very curious about how pitchers have done facing pitchers because pitchers are universally good at pitching and universally, almost universally, absolutely terrible at hitting. Mm-hmm. So just to set some background, I've mentioned it before, but there's a very useful statistic on Baseball Reference that is called T-OPS+. Everyone, I think, is pretty familiar with OPS+. T is a letter that I don't understand why it's there, but this is the name <laughs> of the stat, and it is essentially... OPS plus in a specific split that you're looking up relative to the player's overall OPS plus. So it is a useful way to compare a player against himself. So as a means of explaining what this is, I was looking at the pitchers who have been all time the best uh, at facing other pitchers relative to themselves. And so I looked at, uh, this is all players, I set a minimum for all these stats, I set a minimum of 50 plate appearances. And the first name, the pitcher who has been the best against pitchers, or at least the most effective, is current young, young, young Brewers pitcher Zach Davies. Zach Davies has faced 60 pitchers. He's allowed three hits. So he's allowed a batting average of 0.053, an OBP of 0.053, and a slugging percentage of 0.053. The T OPS plus 
for that split is negative 70. Zach Davies has been absolutely outstanding against other pitchers in his very young career. More extraordinary. No, you know what? I'm going to get to that. So I'm going to get to something because I'll leave my favorite thing for last. So I was looking at just active pitchers. Of course, Zach Davies is the best. TOPS plus of negative 70. Robbie Ray. Interestingly, I might have to write about this, but Robbie Ray, even better here than Noah Syndergaard, who can you imagine a pitcher facing Noah Syndergaard? (laughs) Noah Syndergaard is fifth. He's faced a 95 pitchers and he's allowed six hits i don't know how he's generated just 56 strikeouts i would have expected 95 but noah Syndergaard at tops plus negative 53 for against pitchers relative to other people but robbie ray is there at negative 60 he's in second place robbie ray has faced 94 pitchers in his career he struck at 55 of them <laughs> he's allowed just four hits robbie ray has dominated other pitchers and he's been more occasionally dominated by non-pitchers so there's something to write about because robbie ray is an interesting pitcher and in that mm-hmm. he has really good strikeout numbers and not so good other stuff pitcher the current pitcher who's been the worst against do you have a guess I don't know why you would ever know this. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, the, the pitcher who's been least effective against other pitchers relative to his overall success, uh, we're looking at, confusingly, Jacob deGrom, who has a TOPS plus of 56. He's still been quite good against pitchers, of course, but pitchers have hit him for a 482 OPS uh, regular OPS, which relative to what Jacob deGrom usually does, which is pitch very well, that's weird. So I don't know why this is what it is. It probably doesn't mean anything, but we're looking at 133 pitchers that... DeGrom has faced, and they've hit him fairly well. He's allowed two doubles, two home runs. Looking at uh, individual seasons, the uh, the worst pitcher against pitchers ever, Mickey Lolich in 1976, he allowed a TOPS plus of 144. Uh, pitchers hit him for an 842 OPS plus, or 842 regular OPS. I am getting tired of saying those three letters. Uh, <laughs> I mentioned Bill Hands and Rich Hand before as being tied. That's because they were the 10th worst individual seasons against. This is really confusing. So why don't I just get into the best stuff, at least what I consider the best stuff. Last year, or I guess it was actually two years ago, Madison Bumgarner, Zach Greinke had basically the, the second best seasons ever against other pitchers. Madison Bumgarner allowed zero hits in 57 plate appearances against pitchers, even though didn't he homer off? Clayton Kershaw yeah two years ago so that's mm-hmm. a fun fact but Madison Bumgarner allowed one walk to pitchers in 57 plate appearances Zach Greinke allowed one walk to pitchers in 55 plate appearances they were basically the second best seasons ever against pitchers but first place we've got 1998 Masato Yoshi he pitched for I don't know I don't care probably the Rockies that year doesn't make any difference to me but Masato Yoshi faced 57 pitchers that season and he allowed zero hits zero walks Zero hit batters. He allowed a perfect batting line against pitchers that year. TOPS plus of negative 100. That's 1998. So 1998, Masato Yoshi, basically two perfect games and then some against pitchers. And, uh, oh, he actually pitched for the Mets that year. And uh, he also went six and eight. So he did not have a very good season. He was 33 years old. Uh, so what was the last thing? All right. Okay. So the absolute best thing that I found while doing this research, I loved Masato Yoshi's double perfect game against pitchers, which, yeah. granted, that is... Uh, not a statistic that many people will be impressed <laughs> by, but look, it's hard. Did it in so a high offense era too. That's right, 1998. Yeah, that was the that was the McGuire Sosa year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so okay, so I was looking at the worst pitchers ever for their entire careers against pitchers. Again, using that TOPS plus statistic, there is one single pitcher uh, with this minimum who has ever been worse against pitchers than he was against non-pitchers. One pitcher, and I would have expected, you know, the usual, none, because they're pitchers. (laughs) I don't know how this would ever occur. Third place, Tommy De La Cruz, whatever, don't know who he is, don't care. He uh, he allowed a TOPS plus of 94, almost as bad. Second place, Jim Panther, awesome name, worst results, TOPS (laughs) plus of 96, just as a hunch. Do you think Jim Panther had a nickname? (laughs) Sex. He did not have a nickname. James Edward Panther. His nickname was probably Panther. Oh, and also, by the way, it's his birthday. He's 72 years old. Happy birthday, Jim Panther. You suck against pitchers. So first place, or let's be honest, last place. Last place on this leaderboard, one pitcher, TOPS plus of 103. This pitcher was worse against pitchers. This is a a modern baseball pitcher. Worse against pitchers than non-pitchers. He was drafted by the Phillies. This pitcher allowed a... 756 OPS against regular players, you know, or as they're known, hitters, and he allowed a 771 OPS against pitchers. This pitcher, Jason Grimsley, the only pitcher 
in Major League history to be worse against pitchers than non-pitchers. So kudos to Jason Grimsley for being, I guess, better than you'd expect <laughs> against hitters. But more importantly, just embarrassing. The one, <laughs> the one ever. The one ever guy. Wow, that's a really good fun fact. That replaces, what are the other things Jason Grimsley is known for? Being named in the Mitchell Report and <laughs> being involved in that 1994 Indians Albert Bell cork bat heist yep. where yep. Grimsley went to go retrieve the bat. Now we can know him for being worse against pitchers <laughs> than against actual hitters. Let's see. Let's take a quick glance at his, his baseball reference bullpen page. Do you think this shows up? Do you no, think the baseball reference? I don't think they the found answer this. answer is, yeah, no. Uh, notable achievements. He won two World Series with the New York Yankees, 1999-2000. But he did not play in the 2000 World Series because he was not very good. He did throw a no-hitter in AA, so nice for him. Yet he finished the season leading the minors in walks. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Definitely not on the Jason Grimsley page. <laughs> it is there because he's, uh, his home was searched as part of a steroid investigation. He asked for his release from the Arizona Diamondbacks. He was let go the next day. Several months later, the Los Angeles Times reported that he had claimed that Roger Clemens, Andy Pettit, Miguel Tejada, Brian Roberts, and Jay Gibbons used illegal substances, but the federal judge reviewing the case said that the Times story contained, quote, significant inaccuracies. All of this is just beating around the bush. Jason Grimsley, only pitcher of all time to be worse against pitchers than non-pitchers. That is the only <laughs> thing that should be listed on his page. <laughs> all right. We called Bill Hands in episode 964, by the way, because I think we found that he had allowed the most home runs to pitchers in a mm. single season. Okay. I think it was 1968. He allowed something like five home runs to pitchers that season. Wow. And he was a good sport about it. Yeah, <laughs> so. But no worse than Rich Hand. No. Oh, I should say, Jason Grimsley right here. He was, uh, he was scouted by Philly scout Doug Gassaway. Doug Gassaway, <laughs> who is the scout whose last name is also the name of a hypothetical uh, indigestion relief medicine, I guess. Yeah. Doug Gassaway. <laughs> All right. Question from Matt. With talk of changing of the strike zone, I was taking a look at the rule defining the strike zone. Here it is. The strike zone is that area over home plate, the upper limit of which is a horizontal line at the midpoint between the top of the shoulders and the top of the uniform pants, and the lower level is a line at the hollow beneath the kneecap. The strike zone shall be determined from the batter's stance as the batter is prepared to swing at a pitched ball. It seems weird to me that the upper bound of the strike zone is defined not by a characteristic inherent to the player, but by where the top of the player's uniform pants are, which seems to imply that a player sagging his pants could reduce the size of his strike zone. This could be taken to an extreme in which the player pulls his pants down all the way to his ankles, in which case the midpoint between the shoulders and the top of his pants would be somewhere around the middle of his thigh, rendering the strike zone quite small. An even greater extreme would be the player not wearing any pants at all and creating a real conundrum, but I think that violates rules about team uniforms. My questions are, what would happen if someone tried this? Would this be called according to the rules in the rule book, or is there some rule somewhere about preventing things like this from happening and making mockery of the game? Lastly, would Adam Lind have been able to fart without anyone noticing <laughs> had, he, had he been employing this strategy? I think yes, probably to the last question. To the other questions, we've had a little bit of an email discussion of this already. I pointed to some research that was done a couple of years ago by Frank Furkey about players with high socks and whether that seemed to have any impact on their called strike zones. And he found that it did not relative to players with regular socks. So that's one data point. I think that here's here's what would happen if you had a player who pulled his pants all the way down to his ankles. He would go up to the plate. Let's assume he's just allowed to play it like this, which of course he wouldn't. The midpoint between his the top of his pants and his shoulders, if the umpire was strictly by the book, would still be in the vague vicinity of his hips, which is basically where the top of the strike zone actually is. And then if this player were to ever swing, he would immediately fall down. He would never get it out of the box, and he would be thrown out at first base if he hit a grounder, or the ball would be caught. He probably wouldn't be able to get a very good swing off in the first place. The problem... I should say there's multiple problems here, but one of the problems is that if you pants fit very naturally where they fit, I think that there is not much disagreement. Some people do wear higher pants, I guess, and maybe that would give a hitter some slight disadvantage. But in my experience as a man who has worn pants and is currently wearing pants, pants will find their natural center. Whether you lift them up or pull them down, they will return to where they balance the best, mm -hmm. especially when you are wearing a baseball belt. If you lowered your pants, which is the only way you could conceivably get an advantage in this circumstance, if you lowered your pants and then 
fastened. I don't know what kind of weird ass pencil hips do you have that you can <laughs> pull your pants down and still get a belt around them. But let's say you pull your pants down for a slight advantage at the top of the strike zone. Even though we're talking about moving this alleged boundary, which, by the way, is not at all how the zone is called. You're moving it by like a fraction of an inch. But if you move your pants down and you have a really tight belt just to keep them in place, that's restrictive. It's very difficult for you to use your lower body in the way that like imagine one of those exaggerated leg kicks. Imagine Jose Batista or Josh Donaldson sagging or I guess wearing low risers, I think Mm -hmm. is the term for low pants and then trying to hit a baseball and perform on the field there. Your pants would either return to their usual level or you just wouldn't be able to move your legs the same so you would be countering your own negligible advantage <laughs> by get, putting yourself at a far less negligible disadvantage because mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able to derive power from your lower body but I guess if you're a player who's absolutely terrible then you can go up there and you can try to mess around but here's the reality the top of the strike zone is where your belt is that's how the zone is essentially called and also the top of the zone is not where you find many called strikes anyway. That's, if anything, the area where hitters can't help themselves but swing. So this hitter would probably still chase those pitches anyway, and he would just swing worse because he can't use his legs. Mm-hmm. And as you pointed out in an email, players like to win in a way that they can be proud of, I think, or at least <laughs> they they might feel somewhat <laughs> ashamed to exploit this by adjusting their pants to a a great degree. I think, as you wrote, they're competitive beings who don't want to beat the pitcher on some technicality. And so many of these techniques would probably cross a line where they would be sort of cheating their way to a walk or whatever instead of using their actual talent. Of course, there's a long history of players cheating and bending the rules and everything, but I think it, it gets to a point where Probably just uh, some sort of macho pride would interfere with adjusting your pants to <laughs> such a great degree that you're getting on base more often right. because you of it. You can imagine, like, maybe AJ Prozinski would try it once, but, like, the players already think a regular walk is, like, a technicality. They already <laughs> don't like walking. This is one of the reasons people think, like, Bryce Harper and Joey Votto are overrated is because they walk so much. But people go up there and they want to hit walks are almost like beneath them and of course some players have gotten used to it some players will enjoy their walks so Dubal Herrera would give himself a standing ovation whenever he drew a walk last season because he was so proud of himself but yeah players want to hit and no one likes to be walked very much they know it's it works out for them but certainly I don't think anyone this would be humiliating if anyone <laughs> if if you I mean you would notice pretty quick if a player went up there and you're like hey, that guy's pants are low yeah <laughs> then he'd be like, well, why are his pants so low? Either he has a wasting disease or he's trying to like confuse the strike zone. This is humiliating. His his teammates would give him crap. The fans would give him crap. And he would fix his pants after one pitch, maybe one at bat. And it would all, well, it would never be forgotten, except that he would not try to do that anymore because it is just such a stupid way to try to get on base. Right. All right. James in Nova Scotia says, say I am an eccentric billionaire who buys a major league team with the sole intention of winning the grapefruit or cactus league. (laughs) I do not care about anything other than spring training wins and my front office and coaching staff are on board with my mission. What kind of winning percentage could I achieve in the spring? What kind of organizational strategies and in-game tactics should I employ? So I guess it's obvious enough what you could do if you treated spring training as your regular season. You could essentially have spring training before spring training so that yeah, you, <laughs> you would be ready. You'd you'd start over the winter. You'd get everyone up to game speed. They'd be in midseason form by the time every other team's pitchers and catchers <laughs> report. <laughs> You would never do split squad games or any of that. You'd start your starters and your best players in every game, whereas other teams are resting guys and giving rookies at bats to see what they have. You'd never do that. So that alone, I think, would make a pretty big difference. I don't know. We can quibble about how much spring training actually matters and how much players really improve over the course of spring training. I think... 
pitchers certainly build up endurance and that sort of thing. I don't know how much better a hitter is really at the end of March as opposed to the beginning of March. It's hard to say. There's the Tim Raines example where he came back after a long layoff with no spring training because of collusion and he had that legendary amazing game. So maybe some guys don't even need it. Of course, players now are training year round. They're staying in shape. They're taking BP. They're throwing whatever it is. They're getting ready to a, a greater extent than they used to where more players had off-season jobs or just didn't train as hard. So I'm not sure you'd be able to get as big an advantage today as you might have decades ago, but still probably a pretty big advantage. Yeah, you'd basically, I think, have to tank the previous, at least September, in order to give your players a break so that they could rest up, have an off-season, so then they could have spring training before spring training which I guess would begin probably in the middle of January just to get players up to speed. Yeah, you'd never you'd never bench guys. It is always fun to look at spring training, how many teams might kind of take it seriously. And one of the things I love to look at as an indicator is that, for example, last year in spring training, there were six intentional walks. I don't know under what circumstances you would ever call for a spring training intentional walk. I guess maybe you're trying to set up a situation, but it's just objectively silly to look at. Among the players intentionally walked last spring training, Jose Abreu, David Ortiz, Giancarlo Stanton, Kind of get it. Greg Garcia, Carlos Baguero, Daniel Robertson, get it less. Six intentional walks last spring training. But yeah, you you would not ever remove your starters. You would treat every game. You would, I don't know, maybe you bullpen game it. You just bring in your closer and your setup guy in the sixth, seventh mm-hmm. inning. Leave your best pitchers. You just, yeah, I guess you have to treat it like it's the playoffs. And yeah. I, I don't know what you'd probably achieve a winning percentage. Right. So let's say it's a, uh, let's say it's a league average team. It's a 500 team. What can they do if they do this? I, so the question is if teams start to pick up on the fact that you're taking these games really seriously, would they respond at all just (laughs) out of like a, out of their natural desire to compete? Or would they be like, no, this is still strength training. You're making a mockery of things and we're going to keep playing our backups. Yeah. I don't think they would. (laughs) I think they'd, they'd be okay with losing exhibition games. Yeah. As the spring training rolls on, of course, there are cuts and rosters get better and better. And by the end of spring training, many teams are fielding uh, lineups that are close to the equivalent of their their regular season lineup. So I think that you would start to struggle. Maybe if you're an average team, maybe you'd win like 60% of the games at the end of spring training. But you'd probably win like 80 or 90% of the games at the at the start. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I haven't looked at like how the major league teams have done versus the college teams when they've played those games. But didn't the Phillies lose a couple of years ago? Yeah, I think the college so. team. That was funny. The Phillies suck. <laughs> so I don't know. I think you maybe overall you'd achieve a winning percentage around 750 or 800. But uh-huh. you'd, I don't think that you'd uh, I don't think you'd run the table. Yeah, sounds right. All right. Last question is Eric from Plainview. He says, whom would you rather have as your beer pong partner? Kershaw, Trout, or my friend Murphy? Kershaw has the arm precision to throw a baseball with extreme accuracy, but does that translate to a ping pong ball? Trout is a virtuosic athlete with superior hand-eye coordination, but how does he fare inebriated? And my friend Murphy was the Buffalo University frat pong tourney winner. (laughs) Which one do you take? Yeah, I'm taking Murphy. I think the best way to train for something is by doing the same activity. And I don't, I think if you take Clayton Kershaw and you're trying to get, granted, I don't know how much beer pong Clayton Kershaw has played before in his life. I'm going to guess it's almost zero. I don't think it seems like much of his activity, but I think there's the difference between beer pong and throwing a baseball is like the difference between a baseball and a football. And I don't think that a quarterback would make a very good pitcher. I'd Mm -hmm. rather have like a college pitcher in the majors than an NFL quarterback. So, yeah, I'm taking Murphy walking away. Yeah, neither Trout nor Kershaw went to college, so they missed out on prime beer pong time. And, (laughs) I mean, the answer differs, I think, if you give them a lot of time to prepare. If we say long-term and they're devoting themselves to this, then I think you probably take Trout and Kershaw over Murphy. But while Murphy has the experience advantage i think you take him and long term i'd probably take kershaw experience being Mm -hmm. equal and then trout and then murphy but it would take a while for those two to catch up to murphy question is how good is murphy at pitching (laughs) yeah probably not that great that's why he's (laughs) spending all that time playing beer pong yeah he's not in the best shape of his life (laughs) sorry murphy all right we can end it there 
You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include Michael Stone, Sean McKelvey, Kevin Clark, Lou and Aaron Young. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild, where we are approaching 5,500 members. You can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and you can keep the questions coming via email at podcast at fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We'll be back with another team preview podcast on Friday, and it will be a Midwest one. We'll be talking about the Cardinals and the Royals. So we'll talk to you then. So I go on.